keep turning. Good morning. This is the second hour of Love Babs Love Talk on a Friday. 103.5 FM, WNHH, live streaming out of New Haven Independent. So you, if you were tuned in an hour ago, I was talking to the lovely and sexy <laughs> Carl Franz <laughs> Williams, who is the owner of a bunch of restaurants. But the one that I dig the most is the iconic Anchor Spa. So he was the last hour. But this hour is one of my other favorite people on the planet, Melissa Barton, who is a curator over at the Beinecke. And so I had to have her on because they've got this new exhibit over there called The Art of Collaboration. Hello. Hi. How are you? Thank you for having me. Oh, it's nice to have you back because you were here and you were doing the whole Harlem Renaissance um, out of stardust thing. And and that was so informative. And now you're (laughs) back because... You are part of this, um, the art of collaboration, and your curated pieces. So the show is called, yeah, the, plus the art of collaboration, and it's three shows in one because three of us collaborated on it. Um, and my con- contribution to it is called Richard Wright's Native Son on Stage and Screen. And people know that I hate Native Son, <laughs> but I've learned so much from this exhibit, all the backstory. Yeah. And and you know all the backstory and 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 the exhibit is amazing because there were things that I didn't know and you guys have a little bit of a clip film yeah. clip um, of of so one of the most amazing things about the film version of Native Son which was done eleven well it um it was done ten years after the novel was published uh, filmed in nineteen fifty uh, screened and pre- premiered in nineteen fifty one one of the most amazing things about it is that Richard Wright himself played. <laughs> Bigger Thomas. And he lost um, some weight to do he it. He did. Wright, Wright was 41. Bigger Thomas, the character, is 19 or 20. They, they made him 25 in the film. Um, but Wright was, you know, and he lost 25 pounds to play the role. Um, he, had, he weighed 175 pounds. Does, little, do people you know, think that this was a good film? No, uh, generally not. <laughs> um, it's not, I mean, not many, uh, not many people have seen it. It's, 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 it's available in VHS copies and DVD even, um, but it's not easy to find. And the version that is available in the U.S. was a censored version. So it was uh, one of the reasons it took 10 years to make it um, is that the content of Native Son um, is, was so ob- objectionable to so many people that it, it seemed like it was going to be impossible to have the film screened in the United States for a variety of reasons because of um, you know the, the idea of People of different races uh, and op- the opposite sex even touching one another was thought to be forbidden. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the the communist um, politics of the novel were objectionable. And so for all those reasons, they thought it couldn't be made. Um, and, and then when it was made, uh, it was cut. Um, about about half an hour was cut out of it. So the version that is is widely available was this heavily censored version. And, and I, mean, it, I mean, even to this day, Native Sons remains... A controversy or yes. controversial mm-hmm. still remains controversial. Yeah. Um, but uh, he he had some very interesting thoughts about this work, you know, right, did. and he right. Yes. Uh, and and I think you said something about the biggest thing was the communist piece. Right. Yeah, so so the 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 basic plot um, for people who haven't uh, read and aren't familiar with Native Son is that it's about this young uh, black man who lives in Chicago. He's you know teenage, late teens, maybe early twenties. Um, his name is Bigger Thomas. He uh, uh, gets a job through a welfare agency to work for a white family as a chauffeur. 
So he's supposed to drive their daughter, who's um, a college student, to college. Um, but their daughter is dating a communist. Um, so the, they convince him to you know, take them to a club instead. They all get really drunk. Um, he takes her home. She can't walk. He takes her up to her room. Um, he's in her bedroom, which was, is terrifying to him. Um, and then her mother, who happens to be blind, walks in, and he accidentally smothers her. So that's the, that's the basic plot. And then uh, he gets, that goes all through kind of his cover-up of that, his defense, um, his, his capture, and then he's defended by a lawyer who's also a communist. And so there's a kind of communist argument about how he came to be in the position that he's in um, and how this happened to him that uh, dominates the last third of the book. So, hmm. um, so that part of it was... Uh, Pretty radical in 1940, and then kind of over the over that decade of the 40s, as the Cold War sets in, it becomes um, uh, more and more objectionable in certain ways. So, hmm. yeah. so when you so um, when you all decided to do this plus the art of collaboration, yeah, um, did you know you wanted to do Richard Wright? Did you know because you had a lot of to choose from? Yeah. Like you could have so, picked anything. <laughs> so what? Ha my colleague Nancy Cool, who who curated the part of the exhibit that's called Studies and Creativity, um, which is wonderful. It's a it's eighteen little case studies of different collaborations in American literature from throughout the twentieth and twenty first centuries. So it starts with Burt Williams and George Walker. Uh, mm -hmm. The vaudeville comedians uh, in the early 20th century and goes all the way to the whim a, a, a project that was done in relation with, with the women's march um, just last year. So yes, it's, so it's uh, you know over a hundred years. Um, she had had an idea for a long time, um, uh, maybe at least you know the last the last eight years or so, to do a show about collaboration um, uh, as an as an exhibit. And uh, only about two years ago, when um, this the Library of Congress has created a restored uh, print of the film of Native Son. So they took the censored scenes, they found footage of the censored scenes and added them back in. Um, and when and that first screened at MoMA um, two years ago in 2016. So when that happened, I said, wouldn't it be cool to do an exhibit of all of our film material related to the film of Native Son? And I said, oh, I could work that into your collaboration show because it's all about these crazy clouds because that was a crazy collaboration the stage adaptation of native son was a different and also crazy <laughs> collaboration. i was like that would be cool so um so that's kind of how how and then our other colleague elizabeth frengel um wanted to do her uh, show um her component of this which is about the um children's books of lillian and russell hoban uh who did the the francis books their one their most famous book is called bread and jam for francis mm -hmm. um they, they're a husband and wife team, and we have we acquired their papers separately. They divorced in 1970, so we acquired Lillian Hoban's papers and Russell Hoban's papers in the last five years or so. And because we had both, she said, she said, wouldn't it be cool to do an exhibit about their work? And so we thought both of those would fit well with this kind of broader show about collaboration. So that's how it all came together. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> it, I mean, just you telling it is so like interesting and Yeah, well we've, there've been a lot of jokes along the way about our own art of collaboration. <laughs> jokes and love. Like um there's been a lot of celebration of how Binicky as staff as a whole works together to put together these exhibitions which are big projects for yes. us as a staff. So there've been a lot of um there's been a lot of conviviality, I like to say. Well, you know, the Beinecke is certainly one of the coolest places right now. <laughs> Seriously. I mean, it's just one of the coolest places. And uh, and every time I go to something there, I'm always struck by um, 
this amazing space in the midst of a city, you know, a gem of a space in the midst of a, of a very urban city. So, um, so tell me a little bit about, uh, Richard Wright and his, uh, Richard Wright had a lot going on. Oh yeah, definitely. He had a a lot. (laughs) I think he had, I think, you know, he's, he's, he's a guy that has a lot of, I don't want to say self-hatred. I think he, I think he felt confined by, race i think he did and and uh, you know i think that his it's hard to say uh a single thing about his feelings about race over his entire life which was short he died um when he was just i think 59 but um you know he he's born in mississippi he mm-hmm. grows up in in uh rural mississippi um he uh, when he's in his early teens or an adolescence, his family moves to Chicago as part of the Great Migration. Um, and he's he like Bigger Thomas, you know, he lived on the south side of Chicago, um, didn't finish high school, uh, worked um, for you know various relief agencies. So there's an amazing line in uh, the the rehearsal notes for the um, stage production Native Son, where Wright says that the social worker. Um, who's in the in the in the story needs to be dressed better. He says the social worker should be dressed better, <laughs> which I think is so revealing about his own experience with the kind of um, state supported state agencies and and welfare and his perception of how that how that would seem to a character like bigger. Um, so you know, I think that he had a lot of experience with um, real ex- real firsthand experience with poverty. Um, with with racial discrimination, um, and really poured that into his writing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think the way uh, the people who people who really dislike Native Son, um, I often which is me, <laughs> right? Exactly. <laughs> I often point out to, uh, point to them to uh, a line from his. He wrote an essay after after Native Son, right after Native Son came out. He gave it as a talk. It's called How Bigger Was Born. Mm-hmm. It's usually published with the with the novel now. Um, and in that, he's talking about how he was aware that there were going to be all these objections to the story, that he was taking a big risk in creating a character who might not be sympathetic, who might you know portray African Americans in a negative light. Um, and he says that he... He thought he had made a mistake in his first his first book of stories called Uncle Tom's Children. It's set in the South. Um, they're they're really crushing, heartbreaking stories about all kinds of horrible examples of racial discrimination. There's a lynching in one of them. Um, you know, there's a flood where people are not being rescued. And, you know, there's um, uh, the stories are really um, intense and, and heartbreaking. And he talks about how when in reading the reviews of that, he realized he says that he had written a, a book that uh, bankers' daughters could read and weep over, and then they would feel better just by crying, which is, uh, and he wanted to, to make a story that would make them have to face the reality of white supremacy without mm-hmm. the consolation of tears. That's his famous line, the without the consolation of tears. Um, and whether, whether, he, whether that worked or not, whether that is, is something that we still are talking about you know, I mean, seventy the, years later. Yeah, Rep just later, had so. a riveting exactly. that, that production, pr- production. Yeah, and I had the young man who was uh, who played Bigger Thomas on yeah, the Gerard um, Haynes. I listened yes. to that. Yeah, it was and great. Uh, and he was struck by it too. He was yeah. like, you know, ah, ugh. and yeah. uh, and I had a you know until you said that part, I was thinking that he was trying to play to every stereotype for personal gain rather than. 
oh, let me show these people. Let me give them a snapshot of this so that they can't cry about it. Like they have to come, they have to confront it. Right. So I, I didn't even think about that perspective. I just thought, did it just write this for the white gays so that white people could feel some kind of way? Yeah, I mean, I think that that criticism is totally valid. That that he is, I, I think that um, I he did he was writing it primarily. I think he that shows that he was primarily thinking of a white audience when he was writing it. Right? Okay, not necessarily uh, writing it um, so you know so that you know in in other cases so that people can see. Um, so that African Americans can see a portrait of themselves that that validates their self self worth and identity. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not what he's doing, and I think that there's a a, a totally valid criticism there in saying. Um, in, at the same time, I think there are people who really do. I mean, Nambi Kelly, the author of the adaptation that was here, yes, at Yale Rep, um, she talks uh, really powerfully about. She first read Native Son when she was eight years old. Mm-hmm. She was from the, she grew up on the South Side. And she recognized something when she read it. She loves Bigger Thomas. Um, she was here last night. We we screened the restored, the Library of Congress restored version of the film last night. Oh, really? Yeah. I wish I would have um, known that. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. You didn't know. Uh, maybe was, I, I don't know. I was at some other thing, but. Oh, yeah. No, I mean. So was it good? People I mean, are so busy, you know, but um, it, it's, it was a beautiful print. Like, I don't, this is not something that I usually notice, but when I watched the film before, I watched it on a really crummy VHS copy that was all wibbly and this version was beautiful it was beautiful to see it on the big screen i i was more compelled by Wright as bigger thomas seeing it last night than i was the first the other time was he convincing yes and no uh one of the audience members made a really great comment he has he has this very strange like flat affect he everything everything he says is at exactly the same pitch the same tempo (laughs) (laughs) and there's something that you could definitely call amateurish about that. But um, one of the audience members said, but it really works for the character because the character is supposed to be very closed down by his, by his fear, by racial oppression, by the ways in which his, the avenues of his life are closed off for him. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, and it, there is, it's true that there is something that kind of works about that. So, um, so that was, that was kind of great to see. Um, and the, the character that is Bigger's girlfriend um, in the novel uh, was was kind of played up in the film, amplified in a certain way. In the novel, she's a domestic worker. In the film, she's a waitress who aspires to be a club singer, and she gets a gig. So she gets to perform a song during the show, during the film. And she, I thought she was really great. And uh, so I, Nambi Kelly was here last night to do the talk back after the film. Mm-hmm. Um, and she, com- she remarked on how great, how cool it was to see um you know two young black people in love on the screen in that way in in the film because they they go they go to this is not in the novel but they go to the beach and you know she goes swimming and she's wet and lying on the beach and they're just hanging out on the beach and making out you know which is pretty but, he, but he ultimately kills her he does so much for love <laughs> so, um, <laughs> yeah i mean it's yeah the the fact that he ultimately kills her is a real is a real sticking point for people who try to defend Bigger Thomas, the character. Right? Yeah. So the death of Mary Dalton, the other character, is an accident. Um, but but he, this is but this, this is the deliberate. Yeah, his murder of Bessie is is deliberate. So um, in the movie, they try to they they the adaptations have been interesting in the ways that they've tried to 
make that make make that less Vigor's fault so that he is more likable. So in the in the film, it's a misunderstanding. He thinks that she has ratted him out to the police, and mm-hmm. that's why he kills her. So it's you know, oh, he misunderstood. So maybe there's some forgiveness we could find. I mean, I'm not defending him. But, oh no, um, no, you know. No, and then, but it's interesting um, all the different kinds of perspectives yeah. and how I, I love the way that people try to work out for themselves his humanity. Right. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And I think that it's a question that keeps. I I think it's a a question that has. There's so much richness. You know, the fact that. We could have a new state adaptation of a 70-year-old novel in 20, 2017 and still be talking about the question of Bigger Thomas's humanity. 75, I'm, I'm really bad at mental math, but you know, this long after the novel is published in 1940, I think it's really extraordinary. And you know, there's, a, there's a famous essay by James, a pair of famous essays by James Baldwin in which he really tries to take down yes. this novel. Yes. But they don't uh, settle the question, I don't think. You know, so, um, I mean, I, I, um, I'm a big Baldwin fan and I've studied, I've studied both of them. You know, I, I, I think that there's ways in which Baldwin deliberately misunderstands what Wright is trying to do mm-hmm. um, for his own gain, for his own benefit. So, or because he has to understand it that way for himself. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I, I am, I am not a fan of Bigger Thomas. <laughs> no. I, I, I'm just not. And I, I the story gets on my nerves in a lot of ways. Yeah. I don't think we can be fans of Bigger Thomas, but if it, it, you know, I, but I look at um, like I don't know how you feel about The Wire, the HBO show. Yes, yeah, there are a lot of characters in that show, um, you know, that again, you know, and it's not it's not the antihero thing. It's not a Don Draper kind of you know, but it's that it's the idea that that these are people who who are not in full control of their destiny. Mm-hmm. And Although people like Stringer Bell, right? Worship. Str- I mean, people love that character. But if you look, even at, though yeah, he was exactly he was a bad guy, people love that character. People love all. I mean, they're the character <laughs> Bodie, um, who's one of my favorite characters in The Wire. I mean, if we're gonna go talk about The Wire now, which I guess we are, um, you know, the children. I love the children in The Wire. The child yeah. character, Michael Michael B. Uh, Jordan, who you know now is a superstar. Um, but the but Bodie, the character, he's a murderer. I mean, he murders people. Yes. And but we love him, and we want good things to happen to him. Yes. You know, so I just think. Yes. Um, there's there are ways in which, you know, the and then I think maybe we should think about the idea of you know why do I have so much pathos for a murderer? Yeah, like maybe I should think about that. And I don't yeah. know if I don't. You know what? Bigger Thomas isn't. He's not likable. He's, no, he's not. He's 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 whining from the moment he yeah shows up on the pages. Yeah, and like he pulls a knife on his best friend. You and, know, he's just always yeah. unhappy as yeah. if he's the only one. In any situation, like everybody around you is experiencing this, but people are choosing to go on and you're not. You're choosing to just, you know, hate everything about your life and about everything around you. And other people are like, this is my life. I'm still going to choose joy and fun and love and all these other kinds of things. Yeah, He wasn't able to do that. He just he was just seething with the injustice of everything. Yeah. I mean, I think he does seethe. A lot, and but he, in yeah, and then, but in the novel version, he's he's actually quite terrified. I mean, the first section of the novel is yes. fear, um, and he's he's terrified all the time, 
And uh, I find, I think that I've always found that take to be really fascinating. And, and um, you know, and, and yeah, then, then he does this thing that is completely an accident um, in certain ways. You know, he, he can't be in her room. Yeah. Uh, he also can't be And that for a black there. man at that and time is the, is the greatest fear yes, ever. Right. And that's, and it is that idea, that, that idea of, of a, a, a black man and a white woman and the the um uh kind of um complete uh forbidden nature of their having any kind of interaction that is what Wright was really trying yes. to work with there and he's like basically what if i did an experiment where he i put i put he call, he talks about it being a test tube you know if i put them in a test tube together what would happen and um she he he, it's his life or hers, you know. So I, I think that that's the may, maybe the point that he's trying to make. But um, I agree with you that that the bigger isn't likable. Yeah. And then after it happens, he becomes a lot smarter really fast, which is really interesting too. So yes. <laughs> but you know what? And then you could see, like in the in the production, you know, you could see the heavy handedness of his, of the mother. But yeah. she was she was she was heavy handed in a way of. Not treating him like a grown-up. Yeah. Like treating him like a child always, you know. And so he yields to that all the time, even though he's trying not to. But he, he, so so he's constrained there. He's constrained by the work that he wants to do because he can't, he has dreams. He sees other people accomplishing, white people accomplishing their dreams. And why can't he? Like, why is he, you know, why is he, um constrained by race right like you know. he you know he wants to be a fighter pilot which is yes you know, there's it's just and it's just unheard of and his but he still dreams him. it right? right like exactly. he still he wishes and and uh you know the i think that the portrayal of well-intentioned white people who are members of the naacp and think of themselves as allies in the anti-racist cause that's something that makes people really uncomfortable and i think in the rep production it made people really uncomfortable um but you know i think that Wright's speaking from his personal experience of having been patronized by social workers and you know teachers and other people as in his childhood um that's really uh it's really like a gut yes well yeah because you know what well-meaning white people want you to be free not just not that free (laughs) (laughs) i mean it's it's really uh and so i thought that the the you know uh, in in Nambi's production, um, the the mom and and also the the um, the woman Mary uh, and their whole car ride, they're singing "Swing Low, Sweet Chariot." I thought all of that was really hilarious and it, yes, very overt, but in yes, kind of a. Uh, but 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 I can tell you, it, it's overt. But I can tell you, I'm in situations all the time where white people will say some stuff, thinking that they are identifying with me. And it's really insulting, <laughs> right? Exactly, and I you think, know, yeah, I think and it's that's... subtle, but some sometimes it's obvious, and sometimes it's just low key subtle, low right. key, just low key wrong, right? It's, yeah, I think, and I think things like that must have happened to write all the time. Yes. Like in the '30s, before he wrote *Native Son*, he was participating in the John Reed clubs, which were these communist writing clubs. Um, he was in the John Reed club in Chicago, um, and he was also in a, a Southside Writers group. But he was in all these interracial groups all the time. 
with communists who believe really believed that kind of interracial cooperation was the key, you know, that it was all about the class struggle. And I'm sure they were saying insulting things to him all the time. Yeah. Like, you know, I love the way your people sing. And yeah. those, you know, <laughs> which is one of the lines that they have in the play. I mean, it's terrible. And, and that's, and that's so, the truth. Yeah. And, you know, and, and I don't know anybody who's not had that experience somewhere like like we, like we've all had that experience that low-key racist kind of thing and and where the people saying it don't feel like it's racist <laughs> right well they don't yeah they don't they don't realize i mean they don't feel like it and you know they don't know and that's that's insulting so yeah so you could see how richard wright probably more than most at, at, at his time internalized so much of that do you get that sense? Yeah, like, I can I think, say that? I, or Well, yeah, yes, I do think so. I think there are ways in which um, I, I don't know that. I do think that there are ways in which for Wright, Wright sees bigger as quite different from him. You know, that, that he, though he didn't finish high school, you know, read a lot and educated, it was self-educated. You know, so he sees a difference in between him and bigger in terms of his. Education, you think he does his mastery of philosophy, which uh-huh. he was very interested in existentialism, and um, so that he and he sees that as a kind of key to um, class consciousness, right? To his like understanding of his position in society. You know, but I, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm just thinking out loud, and I, I say, I think, I say that even though, like, basically, the moment. Bigger, the moment Mary Dalton dies in the novel, Bigger be- immediately understands his position in society. Like there are these kind of internal, he has these internal monologues in the novel that are like, he suddenly saw how his mother and his sister were all, you know, oppressed by <laughs> white supremacy. Yeah, and, like, he's, and like he sees it so, all. Yeah, exactly. He understands it. So I think in those ways he, he does. But I guess I don't think that he sees um, Bigger as to blame for mm-hmm. for his flaws, and so in that way, I guess it's I don't see it as a as a kind of self hatred or internalized racism. Um, but there are ways. I mean, plenty of people have argued that. I mean, plenty of scholars have argued. I mean, Baldwin uh, being one of the first ones that that right is is self you know full of self hatred. Um, I just is, I I, you know, I feel that I don't I maybe self hatred is. Is is not what I would say. I would say he felt very trapped by race. Yes, you know, that is like what I think. I, I, is, think he, yes. I think he felt trapped by race. Yes. I don't think he. I don't think he hated being black. I think he hated the way blacks were treated. Like yes, like he, he couldn't go left. as far as he wanted to right. go or move yeah. into spaces he wanted to move. Yeah. because of the color of his skin. That's Simply right. that he had intelligence and wit and all these other kinds of things that everybody says is important to have and yet he couldn't use those things the way other people use those things to move about the world freely yes that's absolutely true and you know he left in um in the mid 40s he he moves to paris and lives the rest of his life in paris because, because i'm sure that's a that's a kind of freedom right. that he was not going to get here that's right i mean yeah. he's just not yeah. you know paris you could just be i'm sure there was some racism but racism because he's American, not because. Yeah, I think there was a little of both. And Baldwin, you know, had a similar experience. Baldwin moves to Paris. He moves to Paris. Yes. After, mm-hmm. And and writes about, you know, even though he he write Baldwin and another novelist named black novelist named Chester Himes. Yes, Chester Himes. Yes. Um, 
And and because they can live more freely there, they can have the uh, romantic relationships they want without people staring at them. They can do the things that they want. to. They can walk down the street. They can go into the restaurants they want to go into. Baldwin does write a lot about how he still experiences a lot of racism in France, um, uh, anti-black racism. Mm -hmm. Um, But I do think that they are freer. They feel freer in in France. Yeah. Yeah. Which is interesting. Which is interesting. Um, And France embraces them, kind of, right? No, exactly. Celebrates them even. Yeah, they they become these kind of stars in certain ways. And um, I think that there's some evidence that Wright really enjoyed that, enjoyed being a celebrity. Oh, I bet you he did. Yeah. I mean, I think he wanted to be recognized for the work that he was doing. Right. Right. Like, I'm just as good as, you know, whoever the popular writer of the day was alongside him. I'm just as good as these guys and or these people. And look, you know, so and he made a lot of money on a native son, didn't he? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It was a bestseller. Um, I don't we actually have a lot of financial documents in the in his papers really in the archives. So we could like add up. We could track down how much money he made. I don't actually know. I know he made. I know he had a five thousand dollar advance um, right before it was published, mm-hmm. which is a lot of money in 1940. Mm-hmm. And um, he made at least you know tens of thousands of dollars in the first year, so it, it really made him financially comfortable. Is he buried in Paris? Is he? Did he die in Paris? He did, and I think he is buried there. I'm trying to remember. Did he have kids? I don't. He I don't... did. He had two daughters. By white women or black women? Um, his. Wife was white, Ellen, Ellen Wright. Okay. Um, it was his second wife. He had been married before, um, to another woman who was also no, I don't remember. Okay. So, yeah. So he's his grandchildren survived. His his children and grandchildren are they still around? I mean, they're around. Yes, they are still around. I never see anything about them. Like I know, you know how people trot out, you know. Like like the Frederick Del- Douglass relatives were right. at Quinnipiac the other day, yeah. right? Like I was like, okay. Yeah. Well, they were raised in France, <laughs> so they're French, you know. Okay, and, so um, they. Yeah, and they're uh, and they've kind of settled, you know, in in Europe. Um, his his descendants. So I have not met uh, any of them, but um, but they're kind of spread out. I think. Okay. So interesting. Yeah. Interesting. So this um, native son was his biggest. Well, was his biggest book? It was, yeah. So you know, his first book, Uncle Tom's Children, uh, it did did quite well, and then Native Son was a blockbuster hit. Um, well, his and then in '45 he publishes an autobiography called Black Boy that yeah. also sells, and really it's well. kind of troubling too, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Like because <laughs> <laughs> Richard Wright had a lot of issues. Yeah, <laughs> um, he did. And yeah, so he, so that does really well too. Um, and then his later works are not as popular. Mm-hmm. Um, he has another novel called The Outsider, um, and then a lot of a lot of nonfiction works. Um, so, so um, do we know how he lived in Paris? Like, do we? What do we know about his life in Paris? Like, did he ever come back and forth? Like, what was that like he for did. him? Well, so you know, the part that I have the most fresh in my mind right now is around the making of the film. But so in in you know he comes uh, back from so he's already living in in Paris when he decides to make the film version with a French. It was a he was a Belgian born but French Jewish director who was living in Buenos Aires because he had fled the German occupation of France. Mm-hmm. Um, 
in during the war, and so it, this was in like '48, uh, and they decide to make the movie. So Wright uh, sails back to the U.S. from from France um, and sells his house in Chicago, which he had still had even though he'd been living in New York. So he goes to Chicago to shoot these outdoor scenes. Um, and it's funny actually. I noticed last night that in one of the scenes he is actually there, so he's a little heavier because he hasn't lost the weight yet. <laughs> uh, so in one of the outdoor scenes, he's a little heavier. Um, <laughs> shoot the outdoor scenes in Chicago, and then they and then they sail to Argentina. So he's in Argentina for eight months, um, and uh, filming uh, filming the movie, and uh, uh, then eventually kind of sails back to Paris. So I think he was moving around. Um, he wasn't there all the time. He does, and he travels, he does a lot of traveling um, for these nonfiction books he does later. He attends the um, Bandung Conference, which is an international uh, Afro-Asian um, anti-colonial conference um, mm -hmm. in 1955 that's in Indonesia. So he goes there and writes a diary about his experience of going there. He goes to pre-independence Ghana in, on the Gold, Gold Coast. Um, and does research for a book there, which is published um, with the name Black Power. So he he does a lot of um, travel for research um, too. Um, so he traveled around quite a lot. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So um, what's your so Richard Wright and Native Son um, still has an audience today. Still, people are still unpacking. The baggage. And, you know, like when I came out of the thing, I, the communist part was very small to me. Yeah. Like well, it wasn't in my rear view window at all. Yeah, I was like, all right, whatever. But it was the other things that stood out more to me. Yeah. It's certainly de-emphasized in Nambi's adaptation of the novel um, because she doesn't in the in the novel. The, the defense lawyer has like a 20 page uh, closing statement about bigger that is a kind of communist uh, uh, Marxist interpretation of bigger's life so that doesn't happen in in the play version and I think that that's a part that it is you know seems very alien to most readers now um, especially yeah. you know, I I still remember I've I still remember the Cold War I mean I was a child when it ended I, but, uh, me too you know, so like but but most people now reading it you know I taught them I taught the novel um, to Yale undergraduate students in the fall. And most of them were like, what? We don't understand. You know, why is anybody upset about this? You know, so they don't, right. they don't really get, you know, <laughs> communism, good, bad. I don't really get it. So um, <laughs> so that's, you know, so it's much more alien to people now, that aspect. But but the other aspects of it, I think, are questions that are still very alive to us. You know? I know. So, so what are, you know, these... Um, you know, young black men who are coming into an economy that doesn't know how to employ them, you know, is shuffling them into prison. You know, all of those, you know, these that, that you know, um, bigger is in a gang, you know, so that's all of that <laughs> is very alive to us now in, in, and very sensible to us now. There's a beautiful shot in the film I noticed last night. Um, it's like, I guess it must be, I'm not a film historian, but I guess it must be like a crane shot where they show the police running through this tenement apartment trying to chase Bigger. And they're running through all the apartments, and all the people who live in the apartments have to run away. So they show all the windows of the apartment building kind of tracking back and forth as they're chasing all these, pe all these people. And it's just this amazing illustration of the police presence in 
the lives of impoverished people mm-hmm. in the United which States. is holds very much true still exactly i was like wow that could ha- be happening now yes. you know and so i think that there's a lot in it and nambi um talks powerfully and beautifully about how she was really compelled to finish this adaptation which she had already begun working on because of the murder of trayvon martin mm-hmm. um, and the acquittal of george zimmerman and so i think that for her it's a story that is very much a part of today's conversation i i think she's right and the way that it and the way that it played it played like that yeah like i it felt very modern to me very right now yeah it didn't feel 19 right 40 19 whatever 60 whatever it was right. it didn't you know yeah. i i saw the native son film with oprah and victor love right yeah. And I, I found that to be the most miserable film ever. <laughs> and I, I'm a Vic, I was a Victor Love fan and I dig over too, but oh my God, it was just so gloomy. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess it's not supposed, it's not supposed to be I, happy, but it I'm just so, seemed over, yeah. overkill. Of, I'm so curious. I hesitate to bring this up because I know so little about the details, but they're working on a new film adaptation. Why? I <laughs> Because we, we don't have enough. Native uh, Son is having a moment. It is. It's and awesome. it keeps chasing me. Yeah. And I think because I have to stop saying I hate it. So it'll leave me well, alone. I think it's I think it's great to have a position about it. I mean, I love that you have a position about it because a lot of people don't know anything about it. So. <laughs> I remember reading it in high school and I was like, oh, my God, seriously. And then I read it again in college. We, we, so this book, this story has been following me pretty much my whole life. And I, yeah. and, I, and I never find anything about it that I like. I'm always struck by how much I really dislike it. And even trying to find it. And I, listen, I never, I never, I don't, I don't hate Bigger Thomas because he's Bigger Thomas. I hate everything around him right. that he it's, feels confined it makes, by. It's, it's supposed to make you outraged. Well, so. I, I well, it, it has won for <laughs> <Yeah>. me then. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I don't think you have to keep reading it. <laughs> no, I, and I, but I wanted to see that production because it's been a long time since I'd seen a production. Yeah, and uh, and it was quite thought provoking. Yeah, and I had to wrestle with my, I had to wrestle with so much. Yeah, I think yeah. that's why I was like, okay, let me unpack this. Let me, un- you know, first of all, white people had to unpack that. And and the well-meaning white people. Then I had to unpack um, white girl privilege. Yeah. You know, and she and her putting him in an impossible situation. Right. You know, because she did. Yeah. And he, there was no way he was going to win either way. Right. Right. Because yeah. he was going to lose, whether he left her at the front door. Right. And he she gonna... woke up the next morning and said, "He left me at the front door." Right. He would. That would have been hell for him to pay. Yeah was trapped he was trapped all the way around yeah and i think that the idea that you know young black men are any less trapped right now right everybody is going to say that that there are many ways in which they are so yes even though uh jim crow legally has ended so yeah yeah so i mean it's a it's a lot so somebody's remaking this again oh yeah there's gonna i don't know so like i said i know very little about the details uh people can google it um but i think um it's a uh the filmmaker uh actually hasn't done a is this his first feature length film i don't know if it's going to be like on uh, you know prestige tv like hbo or on yeah the big screen but yeah it's supposed to 
I think it'll be coming out in the next year or so. Mm. so. Of all the things to make, I guess people <laughs> feel like they have to keep telling this story and, uh, and inviting new audiences to it. I think, I think there's some value in that. I think that's part of I mean, I think there are a lot of reasons as we've all, that we've already discussed to, to do it. But I think that um, there's also a very, like a, a cynical side of me that says that, you know, people are looking for really good stories now for black audiences. Yeah. And they think this, they're wrong to think that this is going to naturally appeal, but they think that it might. Yeah, they think uh, that so, it might. Yeah. But it, it doesn't, you know, it, it's, it's a, it's one of these films that sort of reminds us to stay in a place. And I don't, I, that's why I wouldn't want to see it because it's one of these films that reminds us to stay in a place, you know, um, of, of look, see, see y'all see, look at y'all. This is your story. And we are confined to this story rather than how about let's, let's have films beyond bigger Thomas. Yeah. I, like what's beyond I, what, like what, like if bigger Thomas didn't do any of those kinds of things, who would he be now? Like what would his life be like if he dropped her off at the door and kept going? <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like I need yeah. films beyond yeah. the tragedy of, yeah. you know, the confines of race and that, like, you know, yeah, I, 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 I think that there's, plenty of room for new for new stories i i think so too <laughs> really i really i really do it and you know i is listen people redo people listen shakespeare plays are still done all over the world mm-hmm. this his stories are 400 years old <laughs> and people still like telling them in variations all kinds of variations yeah. on film on on stages across the world <sighs> It's time to move on from the, we need bigger 2.0. Yeah. That's all I'm saying. I mean, there have, you know, there were, I think that there were a a series of um, more what I, what I would call sociological films, but uh, you know, uh, about black life in like the early, in the aughts Mm -hmm. that were in the mold of that without getting out of it. So I'm thinking of Precious. Daniel. Oh my God! Yeah. I didn't see that, that uh, but I yeah. knew the story. I um, knew the story. So that, um, or um, there was that movie about the football player, and Sandra Bullock plays the. Oh, you know, the that. yes. Yeah. So things like that. I think that there are still people who are trying to kind of repackage that story in certain ways. I think you're right, um, and I and I I take issue with that with that too because yeah. it gets on my nerves a yeah. little bit. I because it's still this. It still it still puts us in a place of benevolence to white people. Right, absolutely. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like, like white people save saving us. I don't know. I just feel some kind of way about that. Yeah. Um But so what's something you've seen that you did really like then? Black Panther. Okay, yeah. I I haven't seen it yet. I need I to loved, see it. I love Oh, you have to go see it. <laughs> I know. I, mean, I loved everything <laughs> about it. Yeah. That's Everything what I've heard from even everyone, the villains, everyone I know who's seen it, and I'm dying to see it because go yeah, see. It. I mean, I mean, even the villains I liked, yeah, because they were black villains up against black heroes. Yeah, yeah. You never get to see that. Yeah. Ever. Yeah, it sounds pretty great. So it's good. So I I, I like that. I like yeah. that story. There, I mean, there's a bunch of little stories that I like, uh, where, you know, there's depth and roundness to characters. Mm-hmm. 
you know, they have a backstory. Yeah. You know, um, the women are not just eye candy. Yeah. They're actually just as integral to the story as the men. Right. You know, so. Yeah. You know. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, something that I'm really interested in is is opportunities for black performers, um, and you know, wondering that if, especially on the stage, but also on film, and and uh, having a, a an amazing a movie like Black Panther with an amazing cast and all of those, you know, like Lupita Nyong'o hasn't really had another opportunity since Slave to Slave to have a really like big juicy role in a well film. you know she did um the 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 movie in africa where the the girl is the chess player what is oh, right. that i think that was a disney film right yes yeah but even that though you know yeah but i think so, that was based on a true story of yeah. some sort and for there to be variety in the kinds of roles that they play yes not, not, know, always. Like, not always same <laughs> same thing, you know? oh so, look at you little african people right. and the desperation in africa so, and yeah. Yeah. No. So, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely right. <laughs> so that's so that's something I think is kind of exciting about Black Panther too. So. Yeah, and you rarely get to see black women kicking butt. Right. You know, and yeah. just you know, kick, kicking butt and taking names, just all across. You know, so it's like it was so it was good. So to me, that to me, that's where we begin the standard of films. Mm-hmm. That's where we that's that's where we need to be at mm-hmm. at that level all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, because I'm tired of the slave films. I was like, I can't see another, <laughs> I can't see another slave film. Yeah, I'd be okay with that. Me too. I, I was like, I think we have enough. I think we have what a hundred. That's enough. We can stop now. <laughs> we can. Slave narratives are important. I listen, but we've seen enough. We've seen enough of that. So, uh, Melissa, it has been such a pleasure having you on today. Oh, thank you. It's been so nice uh, being here. Thank you for having me. Oh, I love it. I love it. I love it. So, what's the next? What's your next? Can you? Can you? Hint at what you're going to present next. So the next um, exhibit at Beinecke, I don't have any involvement in, but it's very exciting. It's about um, textiles. So there's going to be a lot of uh, different kinds of objects in it. Um, oh. Like, um, you know, both about kind of uh, paper making and printing, and um, the, uh, but also there are going to be clothing and, and, and fo- pictures, images of clothing and that kind of thing. So okay. That, so that's going to be our summer show. Um. And uh, then in the fall, we're going to have a, a big show on photography um, that uh, should be really beautiful. And um, But uh, I am not doing another show until 2020. Whoa. So I have a little bit of a time. Do you know what it's going to be? Can you, can, you, I, can you hint at? I can hint. I don't know very much yet about what it's going to be about. <laughs> um, it's going to be about women, uh, and it's going to be about the theater. So that's oh. the theater, and that's all I know so far. So mm. I'm going to. You can have some women of color in there. Uh, yes. Okay. Yes. And then I can't wait. So and uh, but uh, yeah, I, I I need to. I'm trying to get find time to do the research for it right now. So. Oh my lord. But, um, yeah, I'm excited to work on it. I'm excited for you. Thanks. <laughs> well, how long does the uh, plus the art of collaboration um, is up for? How long? We close April fifteenth. Okay. Okay. So, so people can go see this and take it all in. It's wonderful. Uh, I enjoyed it when I saw it. I've seen it twice, so uh, I've taken people to see it. So, um, yeah. Yeah, thanks. And uh, if I could make one plug. Yes, we, make um, a plug. 
We have a, a series on Monday afternoons. It's called Mondays at Binding Tree. Yes. Um, every Monday afternoon at 4 p.m. Uh, during the during the term, we have a, a little talk, and it's usually a gallery talk about the current exhibition. So this Monday, uh, Jill Campbell, who's a faculty member at Yale, is going to be talking about the children's books of Lillian and Russell Hoban um, at 4 p.m. And then uh, I think we'll have one more before the Yale spring break, and then we'll resume after the Yale spring break at the end of March. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you. I hope you come back. Well, you will, because I'll invite you to come back, because oh, I love so talking much. to you. Oh, it's so nice to be here. Thank you. It's always a pleasure. Thank you, Harry. <laughs> All right, I'm about to play us out. And uh, I'll be back on Monday for Motown Monday. I don't know what we'll, who we'll be featuring, but you know, we'll have a good time. Have a good weekend. I'll see y'all soon. Love.